This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. We've gotten to another week together on the Word to Stand On for Life. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is a radio program dedicated to answering your Bible questions or your Jesus questions or questions about something that's going on in your life. We'll do whatever we can to answer whatever it is you need to have an answer for. Uh, for your live calls, and the program's always more interesting when you call, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email us and email questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as I tell you, every day at 4 o'clock, the safest way if you're driving in your car is to use the KSLR free mobile app. And uh, we would love to have your questions. 340-9585. Because it's Friday, I always like to let you know what's going on with us. Tonight is Acts chapter 2. The church is born. We actually celebrate a birthday tonight. It's not the actual birthday, but you know what I mean. Uh, Acts chapter 2, we start tonight. I'm going to get, I think, the first 12 verses or something like that. Uh, and then on Romans 8, will be uh, Sunday will be uh, in Romans chapter 8. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, we would appreciate your prayers. School starts Monday uh, for us. That's always a big shift in things here. The place gets super, super busy. And just for this old person, the place gets really, really loud. So we'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, we got to welcome uh, the parents. Uh, last night was our parents' um, back-to-school meeting, uh, sort of an orientation where we give them their uniforms and all those things and had a full house here last night. And um, we're really looking forward to another great year. By the way, this is our 18th year of God's miracle of a, a free school um, supported 100 percent by the generosity of the people here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. So all of that's going on. I know what's going on for you. When you go to church this Sunday, please go available to God to be used. Don't just go to go to check off a box, but go instead to say, Lord, who can I minister to? Who can I love? Who can I put my arms around? Who can I pray for? How can you use me today to minister to someone else? When you go to church with that mindset, that heart set, what will happen is you won't worry so much about whether your needs are being met. You won't worry about how people are responding to you. Uh, You'll worry more about how you can minister to others. That's what happens. Jesus said if you find your life, you'll lose it. If you lose it for him, you'll find it. And there's no better place to start 
than at church. Okay, let's get to some questions that we had sent in. Here is our first question from Jerry from our mobile app. Jerry says that James says faith without works is dead. Does that mean we have to work for our salvation? Uh, Jerry, it means exactly the opposite. And I'll explain that to you for a moment. But let me share with you something Paul said in his letter to the church at Philippi. He said that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, Not work for our salvation, but to work it out. And that's sort of what James is talking about. And James, in this particular case, isn't contradicting the Apostle Paul. He's not contradicting anything that Jesus said about believing. Uh, He's simply saying that if you have genuine saving faith, works will result. In other words, what he was saying is the evidence of a real faith is works. Not works to get saved, but works because you are saved. Now, we're not talking about works like I have to do good deeds and things like that, although saved people will do good deeds. What he's talking about is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, um, goodness, self-control. Those things will control your life. Uh, Why? Because the Spirit of God lives in you. Those are the kind of works. It means, from a very practical uh, application perspective, Jerry, it means that your home will be governed by love and kindness and joy and peace. It'll be a great place for children to grow up. It'll be a place where they see mom and dad loving each other because they love Jesus. So it won't be the typical home that we think about whenever there's strife um, or, or homes broken by division or homes uh, or by sin, rather, uh, homes broken by divorce. Um, it, it's not that the works will follow because Christ lives in us. And that's what James means. And the misunderstanding of this verse, Jerry, uh, it's often what Catholics use to justify, no, you're saved by faith and works. Um, We know the Bible can't contradict itself. And the teaching on salvation is clear. Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by grace through faith. Even the faith isn't from you. It's not of your own. It's a gift from God. And that's how we're saved. When we're saved, we have everything that God has for us then we have to make the choice every day to walk in it. If we're really saved, James says, you said, you show me your faith without works, he's saying it's a challenge. I'll show you my my faith is real by what I do. And that's the sense and the context of that passage. So, Jerry, it's not we have to work to get saved. It's that once we are saved, good things will happen. Jesus talked about good fruit being produced. Well, that's the good fruit that James is talking about. Here's another one from our mobile app from Rich. Rich says, what does Paul mean exactly when he says that we're going to judge angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3? Rich, he's using the angels as an example of, of the appropriate way to look at a problem that was going on in the church at Corinth. Now, obviously, we talk about it a lot because I get a lot of questions on 1 Corinthians. The entire first letter to the churches in Corinth, were letters. it was a letter of rebuke. From start to finish, he says hi, and then he gets right into it. I hear there's a lot of stuff going on that shouldn't be going on in a Christian church. And he spends the rest of the book talking about those things. In chapter 6, he's talking about believers going to court or suing one another, and they would be doing that in front of an unsaved judge. And Paul's incredulous. How could you be doing this, especially uh, when you go to court or you go to, to a judge who isn't Save. Why would they be competent 
to, to make judgments about the lives of Christians, when in fact it's we Christians who should be making those judgments, and we should do it in a way that honors the Lord. So he's saying that Christians can never sue another Christian. Now, obviously, uh, that gets lost in our flesh in the culture that we live in. But he said that it would be better to suffer loss. Now, when he talks about, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? He's talking about in the day of judgment, the day we call it the great white throne judgment, we will be where there with Jesus judging the fallen angels. We call them demon spirits from Lucifer all the way down. And so he says, we're going to be doing that. But it wasn't a doctrinal issue that he was trying to make. He wasn't trying to spike our curiosity about how we're going to judge angels or what the judgments are going to be about. Uh, It's not that we're going to pronounce a judgment. Our faithfulness will be witnesses to those fallen angels of their deserved position uh, for eternity in the lake of fire. So that's all he's saying you Christians, can't you get along? Can't you honor God? Can't you do something to mediate these discussions so that our witness in the world isn't compromised? That's what he was saying to the church at Corinth. I imagine in a lot of our uh, individual lives, he would still be saying that very thing today. We still see entire ministries suing other ministries because of disputes. Instead of going before another pastor or uh, a couple of pastors, Bible-believing church pastors, and say, tell us what the right thing to do is here, and we'll do it because we want to honor God. So, Rich, that's what he means. Not that uh, we're going to put on a, a, a robe in heaven or anything. Uh, he just means that what we're going to do is be witnesses to the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And basically, our presence there is going to condemn them to eternity. The humans got it. Why didn't you who saw me in the heavenlies. I hope that makes sense, Richard. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I was actually hoping I'd get a call before this question came up. Um, I'm not sure I should be answering questions like this, um, so I will I will answer as best I can. I don't want to inflame anyone. This is from Caleb from our email inbox. He says, as believers, what should our response be to the recent events in Charlottesville, Virginia. In particular, believers who have very differing views on how the president responded and what should be done with monuments that for some represent systemic racism. Caleb, I'm just going to take a shot, and this is just my heart, and uh, remember my opinion on things that are worldly uh, has no more value than anybody else's opinion. Let me say first that we who are Christians, regardless of what side of this political issue we're on, and this is going to be an issue that is not going away. It's not going away. So we need to know how to respond. Our job as Christians is to be on Jesus' side. And he has got a side where it comes to leaving the monument up or taking the statue down. Jesus' side is the law of love. And as Christians, we're always to sacrifice our own freedom in hopes that others will get saved. Now, here's the ugliness on this divide, Caleb. We've got two people on each side, and and, and in both cases, especially if you're reading uh, Facebook or Christian blogs or something, You've got Christians shouting down each other, Christians with differing points of view, and, and, and they're determined they're going to prove their point and win the argument. That's not Jesus' side. 
that's not Jesus' side at all. Um, Jesus' side is love. And what we ought to be doing in these conversations, if we even feel the need to have them, what we ought to be doing is demonstrating um, his love to the people that disagree with us or the people that we disagree with. We can't make everybody think the same. But as Christians, we all of us ought to be able to agree with Jesus on the things that matter the most. And love is the most important thing. So how do we love somebody that we disagree with? First, I would suggest that we... People hate when I say this. I would suggest that we get off Facebook, we get off these blogs, we stop writing things to each other like we're shouting at them. We stop making judgments about people and instead spend more time with Jesus. Get in the Word and then ask Him for counsel, for direction. Lord, now I'm here. What what do you want me to say to these people? We should talk to people face to face so that they can see our sincerity of heart. We need to give people room to disagree. But this political polarization that has gripped our world, we should expect that. What we shouldn't expect is that we um, don't expect that kind of behavior from Christians. So how do we do it? We look at every opportunity with somebody who disagrees with us as an evangelism opportunity to tell people about Jesus. To tell people about Jesus. As a Christian, I think it would be Jesus' heart for the unbelieving people that disagree with us. Those people to whom those symbols, those statues represent systemic racism. I think we ought to be willing to let them take it down. It's frustrating for me when we've got local politicians, and it's happening right here in San Antonio, who are jumping on this bandwagon because it's the it thing, the cool thing to do now. But here's what we ought to do. Here's what I hope I would do. Now, I I think I speak from a perspective um, that nobody can accuse me of, of racism. I'm married to a beautiful black woman. My kids are, would say they're black. So this just comes from love. I think if I was standing at, for instance, the soldier at Travis Park statue and there was a black person who was upset about that statue, I think you know what I would say is I think I would say, I'm sorry. I think I would say, I'm sorry for what you've been through. I mean, I didn't cause it, but because I love people, I don't want them to have to go through those kind of things. The president's response, you asked about directly, Caleb. The president's response was woefully inadequate. Before I say what I want to say next, let me remind you that it is our responsibility as Christians to pray for the president, to pray God's best, for God's wisdom, for our president. 
at the same time we have a president unlike any other in our history who has polarized everyone who refuses to take the high road we need to pray that he gets saved we need to pray that dignity is restored to the office and of course it would be better for our nation if that happened through President Trump but what we cannot do is devolve into these arguments and name calling we had a call earlier this week on the show that embarrassed me I'm sorry that it went out over the air from somebody who is ostensibly a Christian. We simply shouldn't have opinions. Opinions don't matter unless it's Jesus' opinion. And no matter how right you think you might be on an issue, if you don't deliver that opinion in love, then it would be better for you from God's perspective not to deliver it or give it at all. It's very important. Final part of this question that I want to deal with, and and uh, remember, I don't want this to be a political program under any circumstances. There's plenty of of um, political talk radio programs. Um, as believers, our response to the whole incident ought to be righteous indignation. I think of Jesus fashioning a whip as he walks through the temple and say, look what you've done to my father's house. I think in this country where racism is declared repeatedly, I think we need to be available to the Lord to help introduce those people who have been hurt and disenfranchised. We need to ask the Lord for the opportunity to introduce them to the one who said there's no difference between people. There's just, just saved and unsaved. Any expression of racism, any expression of prejudice for a professing Christian should be anathema. Church here at Calvary Chapel, we come through the appropriate passages that it's possible for a real believer, not a professing Christian, but a genuine believer, it simply isn't possible to be prejudiced. It is sin, it is a sin against the law of love, and it breaks Jesus' heart. If we're really saved, we have his heart. Then and only then will we be able to effectively minister to the people that he loves, the people for whom he died. So, Caleb, that's the best I can do. One final thought on this, and this is just for everybody, but especially for those of you in the audience, um, largely a Christian audience. Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that God put us where we are at the very time we're here because he said he did it so that we would more easily find God and I would add that we would more readily be available to God what that means as sad as it is I'm old most of you are not our country is changing so quickly 
the level of vitriol and hatred that's being spewed every day by people on every side. Remember, I'm only concerned now about Christians for Christians. To show up at a statue and protest and protest. Well, there's simply no place for that. Are we free in the United States of America to do that and express our opinion? Yes, we are. That is our right as a citizen. However, our citizenship is not America. That's the place that we travel through. Our citizenship is in heaven. And God wants men and women right now in this terrible time because he wants to do a great work before he returns. He wants all of us to be in a place where we can lead the greatest revival in the history of the world prior to the time of Jesus' return for his church. I truly believe we're in those last days. I truly believe we're in those last days. And I don't want to explain to Jesus why I was at a protest or why I was typing rumors and lies on Facebook or Twitter. I don't want to explain to Jesus why I looked at somebody whose race is different than mine. I I don't want to explain why I said bad things about them or had bad thoughts toward them. I want to be used by God. I trust that most of you in this listening audience want to be used by God as well. You can't do it if you've got one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus. Spend less time with politics and Fox News and CNN and spend a whole bunch more time with Jesus and in your Bibles. Caleb, that's the best I can do. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We'd love to have them. You're a lot more interesting than I am. Here's a question from Raymond. Pastor Ron, what is open theology? Uh, open theology is heresy, Raymond, but let me tell you what the basic uh, construct behind it is. Um, it, it's the debate between uh, free will that man has or doesn't have and God knowing everything. And the thought is if God knows and controls the future, then man is not, cannot be free. That's open theology. Now, um, you know, an open theologist would suggest that God isn't intricately involved in the things of this world. And in fact, some go as far as saying that uh, God created things, yes, we believe, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. Well, wait a minute, if God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, if he knows the end from the beginning, if he is the I am, always present, he has to know. So open theology, Raymond, if you're reading some, stop it. Uh, instead, read your Bible. Uh, if if uh, you're arguing with somebody about it, don't. Just show them what a Christ-like life really looks and sounds like. Um, please rest assured that God not only knows everything and is in control of everything. Now, the fact that control doesn't mean cause everything is significant. I think a lot of the debate that we have here between the, the free will of man and the sovereignty of God debates from the reformed side versus the, the non-reformed and those who, who sort of drift into open theology is that we look at, at control as cause. And, and God's sovereignty isn't causative. 
God doesn't cause uh, somebody to drive um, a van into people in Barcelona. Uh, God doesn't cause people to fly planes into the, the, the World Trade Center uh, in 2001. Um, sovereignty means that he's still in control in spite of those things. He doesn't stop them. He doesn't intervene. Man has three, still has free will to be evil. But the evil that's done doesn't stop or delay even God's plan. Because he knows all these things are going to happen. We know in Romans 8, we're told that uh, God works everything, good and bad, everything together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Everything that God knows is going to happen, his sovereignty, his power, is beautifully illustrated in the fact that his plan goes on as before with Jesus seated at his right hand waiting for that moment when the father says to the son it's time go get your bride that's what happens at a Jewish wedding in biblical times an agreement would be made between fathers two children are going to be betrothed the father of the groom would supervise the preparing of the home he would be very picky. He'd wait a long time. Finally, one day he'd say, now is time. Go get your bride. Well, Jesus pretty soon is going to be told to go get his bride. That's us. Hey, we're at the end of the first half hour. We've only got 30 minutes left on the program. In the week, in fact, 340-9585. We love your calls. We'll be back in two minutes. Stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Friday edition program. We are coming to the end of another week. You know, the program, doing it every day makes everything go fast, which means I'm just getting older a lot faster. Hey, before we take a phone call, I want to apologize for the digital hiccups is what I'm told the technical term is that we had. uh, I think that's God's way of saying, you know, Pastor Ron, this mouth is for Jesus, not for politics. So uh, I'll do that. Uh, Let's go to Tanya in San Leandro, California. Tanya, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Can you hear me? Can you Can you hear me? Pastor Ron, can you hear me? Oh, okay. Can you hear me? I can hear can you, you hear now, me? Tanya. Thank you. I can oh. hear you right now. Good. <laughs> okay. Um, Pastor Ron, question for you. I was looking to read the book of um, Habakkuk, and I used to go online to see if there's some type of um, little uh, Bible study you've done on that, but I didn't find one. It doesn't mean it's not there, but I didn't find one. And so I wanted to get some background um, about the book itself prior to really delving in. I understand it's about how God uses um, the uh, Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to uh, punish Judah. So I wanted to understand um, just some background, if you have any. I, I try to uh, get a little bit of reference 
um, prior to reading a book, so I wanted to ask you about that. And I'll take your answer off the air. Thank you. I can do it, Tanya. Thank you. We love you and we miss you. I keep saying that every time you call, but I'm so grateful that that you call. Um, I haven't done Habakkuk, so you didn't miss it. Uh, truth is, um, we just haven't gotten to that. We only do the New Testament or the Old Testament rather one day a week, and and uh, the Lord, I believe, has led to um, uh, just to, to do some repeats in the book uh, in the Old Testament. So we just haven't gotten to. Uh, Habakkuk yet. Um, hope to. It's a good book. Um, we we don't know a lot about Habakkuk. Uh, probably we know less about him than any of the other prophets. And they're all basically, the prophets are about the same things, whether it's judgment uh, against the northern tribe with Assyria or judgment against the southern tribes uh, with, with uh, Babylon or the Chaldeans, as you said. Um, they're all about the same thing. God says, uh, follow me, and it'll go well with you. If you don't follow me, it won't. Um, Habakkuk occurred uh, just prior to the destruction of Judah, the, the, the coming of the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we don't know exactly how soon before, but it was during the reign of King Jehoiakim, um, um, sometimes we think about 605 to 610 BC. Um, so we, we, we have a lot of uncertainty simply because there isn't anything uh, else. Um, one of the things that we need to know is that he um, uh, considered this prophecy a burden. Uh, he says, the burden which I saw, um, not only in the sense of the message from God that was hard, but also in the sense that it carried a really, really heavy weight. Um, it was heavy in its content because he pronounced coming judgment, uh, but it was also heavy in the sense that Habakkuk deals with really tough questions that he brings to God and answers those questions. Unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk is one of the, 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 the prophets who asked God, why are these things happening? When he heard for example, that God was going to use the Babylonians. Now, everybody in the world at that time feared the Babylonians, and they were among the, the, the most wicked people living wicked lifestyles in the history of our world. Um, and, and Habakkuk was, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, it depends. Um, um, both are appropriate, I think. But, but when he thought that God was going to use them, it was like, well, why them? Why them? And um, God's word was simply, don't, don't question me. Uh, they are my instrument of judgment. Um, they too will be judged themselves. But that's the idea. So this is in the century or so. God is patient. He gives us plenty of warnings in the century, uh, maybe a half century, 50 years uh, before uh, the sieges of, of uh, Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonians. Uh, he gave them plenty of time to repent of their sin. They refused to do so. And later he would be followed, of course, by um, uh, Ezekiel, um, who will be in uh, Babylon, and Jeremiah during the same time, during the destruction of Jerusalem, who will be actually in Jerusalem. And they're both delivering the same message. So um, that's the background of the book. And it's really... Um, God, all these things are happening. He looks at the condition, the spiritual condition of his people, Israel, and he says, why do you delay judgment? 
And then when God tells him, I'm not delaying, I'm being patient, but the Babylonians, Babylonians are on their way, that's when uh, Habakkuk begins to really, really question um, everything that's going on. So uh, I hope that helps. It's, it's a good book. Now, um, you, you know, you, you need to read that with some of the other um, prophets in the same time. Um, Haggai, Zechariah, as I said, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah are a little easier to read uh, in the sense that they're smaller. Uh, but one of the issues, especially with Zechariah, uh, it's probably the single most difficult prophet um, to, to, in terms of understanding the book um, that we have in our in our scriptures. So good study, and you will be blessed. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from George. He says, uh, "What does perfect love casts out all fear mean? I still have times of fear. Am I saved, or is my faith weak?" George, we all have times of fear. Uh, I, I want to be as transparent as I can on this program just the way I am with my church, and I'll be honestly uh, that candid because I'm afraid all the time. Um, we greeted a whole bunch of parents yesterday who were entrusting their children to us, and, um, um, you know, that our school costs us about $100,000 a month just for the school. And we, we don't have, we can't grow our church. We, we don't have enough room. We, we don't have room for the people who come now. So there's no um, billion-dollar check anybody's dropped off. We don't have any big benefactors. It's 100% supported by the ministry uh, or, or by the, the, the generosity of the people here at Calvary Chapel. We never ask for money. We don't let our needs be known. And I'm going to tell you, I live my life in fear. What am I going to say to these parents who've entrusted their kids to me if if something blows up or if we just can't afford it anymore? And um, what we do with the fear is what matters. That is what determines, George, whether our faith is strong or weak. If I uh, start shutting down things, I start cutting costs, I'm firing people because we can't afford them, and I do that out of fear rather than running to God because they're his problems. He's the one who directed us to do this um, in faith. Well, that's when we know if our faith is weak or strong. So we can't let circumstances change. Now, what it means is simply this, and this is First John four, eighteen, where John says there's no fear in love because perfect love casts out all fear. And here's why. Because fear has to do with punishment. Now, I know... George, and I hope you know that we're never going to be punished for our sin. Now, sins for sure has consequences in this world, but we're never going to be punished. I talked about this just a little bit last week in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, when we spent one whole study on, on, on that one verse. There is now no condemnation. It means that when I get to heaven and the book of my life is opened, and I think, just my own opinion, I think I have a really thick book because I did a lot of really bad stuff. But when the book of my life is opened, at the same time the Lamb's book of life with my name in it is opened, all of those accusations, all of those charges uh, against me, all of the things that I've ever done wrong, George, uh, they're going to be covered with stains of blood. Nobody's going to be able to see what I did. Nobody's going to be able to know what I did because Jesus covered them all for me. And then he's going to look at his book of life, the Lamb's book of life, he says, oh, no, here you are, right here, you're perfect. See, we have no fear of 
punishment. So the context is important. It's not that you won't be afraid. It's just that you won't be afraid of judgment. The one who fears, the one who is afraid of judgment is not made perfect in love. In other words, that's John's way of saying, look, if you're still afraid about being judged, it's because you probably haven't really surrendered your heart to Jesus. You're not really saved yet. So we can be afraid, and it's okay to be afraid. Again, I want to emphasize, I'm afraid every single day for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, we don't have to be afraid of judgment. And I can honestly say I'm 26 um, and a half years, a little more than that now in the Lord. And after the first couple of weeks when Satan was shouting at me and screaming, except for that little tiny bit of time, I've never had one moment of doubt about my salvation, about my eternal destination. Not a single moment. And that's what John is talking about. If you are afraid, that's what we need faith for. If you're afraid of being punished, you need to get saved. So I hope that answers your question, George. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from our mobile app from Raw. Uh, Hi, Papa Ron. I was listening to a radio show yesterday. The pastor in the show stated that tattoos are a sin. And since the Bible states that in Leviticus 19.28, I'll read it for you. It says, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. Uh, And then this is back to uh, Rawl. I don't agree on what he said. Could you please elaborate more and explain why tattoos are not a sin? Uh, Love you, your son from the church. Raul. I, I'm, I got Raul Reese. If you call Raul Reese, Raul, he gets upset. So, sorry, Raul. I, I got Raul Reese on my mind. He's coming in October. So, um, yeah, Le- Leviticus 19.28, uh, and, and it, it's still stunning to me that a pastor, so-called Bible teacher, would take this Old Testament law, misunderstand it as badly as they do, and then say, well, that law applies to us, so it's a sin. First of all, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He fulfilled it because we can't keep it ourselves. Secondly, Leviticus 19 wasn't written to you, Raul. It wasn't written to me. It was written to his people, Israel. And it was written to his people, Israel, because God wanted Israel to be different from the pagan peoples around them. And they often cut their bodies. And that's the literal translation of, of the word tattoo in the NIV. Uh, the literal translation is cuttings. And, and what they would do is they'd cut themselves while they were worshiping uh, their false gods. They would cut themselves and make themselves bleed and, and permanently mark their bodies. And they would do that um, as they were uh, summoning familiar spirits or, or, or worshiping the dead, uh, whatever their pagan practices were, and there were many. And God is basically saying to Israel, I don't want you to be like that. So the tattoo that Leviticus 19 talks about is a cutting in the context of a worship of false gods or seeking familiar spirits context. A tattoo in our culture is just body art. And for us to look at people with tattoos as though they're sinners, um, so are Christians who get divorced sinners. So are husbands who yell at their wives or their children. So are our, our moms who yell at their kids or who, who yells or speaks spell badly of their husbands. Why is it that we pick out these little things? And by the way, there's a whole bunch of New Testament stuff that we can pick on that we don't have to go all the way back to Leviticus. So I am personally against tattoos because they hurt. 
That's why you will never find a tattoo on my body. But beyond that, if somebody's tough enough to endure them, they think it looks good, they want to tattoo their bodies, as long as they're not tattoos that dishonor God, then I tell them that's between you and the Lord. Romans 14.23 says, Anything not of faith is sin. If you and your conscience can do it, go ahead. So these are the kind of things. That's just poor scholarship, Raul. It's just poor scholarship. So, right, he's wrong. Thanks a lot. 340-9585 for your live calls. Mason wants to know, why was David forbidden to build the temple? Um, the, the reason God gave him was because there's blood on his hands. Now, you remember the story. Dave, David, who had a heart after God's own heart, um, looked around and he, he saw he sees his house being built. And, and, he, and he has this moment where he says, God, I, I have a house, but you don't have a house. I want to build this wonderful temple. Now, clearly, at least from my perspective, God had indicated to David that there was a temple in Israel's future. And David got to the point where he says, okay, I'm getting old. I want to build it while I can. And you remember Nathan the prophet was right there at the time. And and Nathan said, sounds good to me. Do all that your heart wants to do. And then God later stopped Nathan in his tracks and said, you were wrong. You didn't speak for me. You go tell David that he cannot build a temple for me because there's blood on his hands and I'll have his son Solomon build the temple so a couple of things here that are important David's blood on his hands was more than just as a king as a warrior David killed Bathsheba's husband a faithful brave courageous fighting man David counted the troops of Israel in his pride and the angel of the Lord we had a question about it earlier this week extended his sword and judgment over them in a plague or, or he actually killed uh, the people of Israel till, his, the, till, till David had to beg him to stop and sacrifice on the threshing floor of Aronah there were other things David did that cost God's people their lives and God says no my house is going to be built with innocent hands And you know what I love the most, Mason, about David's response is he didn't whine because he didn't get his way. I mean, just think about it. He could have killed Nathan. Well, you told me I could, and I want to do it. He didn't do it. He repented. And he counted himself blessed because his son was going to be the one who was able to do it. And David still wanted to be part of that. And here's what he did, and I love this. Because he didn't just wait and say, well, I don't get to do it, so I'll just leave it for Solomon. He began preparing and accumulating the materials that would be needed. He would sit and he would talk to his son Solomon and tell him, here's what you ought to do. I mean, he would give him the wisdom of, of, a, of a father who is king. And when Solomon did take over, he was fully prepared, had the materials that he would need, and the one whose hands at that point in life were innocent of the taking of blood or the taking of human life, he was able to build the magnificent temple that he's famous for, among other things. So that's why David was forbidden to build the temple, Mason. three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls. Here is a question from Johnny. He says, in Acts 19, why hadn't the believers in Ephesus heard about the Holy Spirit. 
Johnny, that's another passage that's often misunderstood. We need to read very carefully. They were John's disciples. The reason they hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, is because they weren't believers, not in Christ yet. Now, they were believers in John's baptism. That's a baptism of repentance. In other words, these were men, clearly, who were seeking God. They wanted to get close to him. They wanted to know him. As John's disciples, they had part of the story. Paul Harvey, who most of you are too young to remember who he was, he used to have a radio program called The Rest of the Story. Well, the rest of the story is that John died um, early in Jesus' ministry before Jesus um, had a chance to die and, and, and raise from the dead. So those who were his disciples, Apollos, by the way, was another one. Uh, not in Acts 19, but, but uh, in an earlier place. Um, they talked about the kingdom of God is at hand. Theirs was a baptism of preparation. And when Paul saw them and started talking to them, he noticed that there was something missing, just like Priscilla and Aquila noticed something was incomplete in Apollos' message. And he said, well, what baptism have you had? They said, we had John's baptism. And what Paul would say, and I always imagine, I picture this in my own mind this way, I think Paul had broke out a big smile, and he said, sit down, guys. I've got a story to tell you. John's baptism was for the one who was to come. Let me tell you about the one who has already come. His name is Jesus, and he would share the gospel with them. And, of course, then they got saved, and at that point, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the Spirit, nor had they heard about the Spirit, simply because they didn't have the whole story. Johnny is really, really great um, um, studying there in Acts chapter 19. Marvelous. That's a lot of people that we talk to. They know about God. Everybody does. Everybody knows the name of Jesus, but they don't know him. You and I, Johnny, we have the opportunity to do what Paul did for the Ephesians that he ran into. And sometimes somebody will say to you maybe something that they said to Paul. We do know there is something as the Holy Spirit. Well, let me tell you about this good news. Thanks, Johnny. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Jeremiah. Um, this will probably take the rest of our program. We're in outside about five minutes now. Jeremiah said, Pastor Ron, can you talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 for me in a practical way? What would that look like in daily life? Well, Jeremiah, the fruit of the Spirit is is really sort of the, the identification of who is and who's not a believer. The man or the woman who's walking in the flesh, you can go up a couple of verses, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, and what you see is the way unbelievers behave. Also the way that no one who professes to be a Christian should behave. The list of sins and and, and immorality are, are horrendous. Um, rage, anger, sexual immorality, just all kinds of things. And then Paul says people that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then beginning in verse 22, he says, But the Spirit is love. And love is singular, by the way, in the Greek. So it says love, that is the fruit of the Spirit. And everything that follows uh, is sort of uh, descriptive of what love looks like and acts like. So Jeremiah, if you want to know what it looks like daily in a practical way, 
uh, if you are filled with God's Spirit, uh, love being sort of the, 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 the fuel for, for whatever God wants you to do, well, here's what it looks like. It looks like joy. It looks like peace and patience. It looks like kindness. It looks like goodness. Self-control. Gentleness. In your home, Jeremiah, it ought to look like a volume level, sound like a volume level where everybody can speak and love and know that they're loved. A place where people free share their heart without fear of being attacked. It means, and I don't know if you're married, Jeremiah, but if you're married and if you have children, it means that when they see you and your wife talking, your kids hear love talk. Not raised voices, not anger, not name-calling, not mistrust. But love. And patience, it means they should see a dad. Your wife should see a husband who is patient and impatient, who doesn't get frustrated. Or when you do get frustrated, because we all do take those frustrations into the Lord. And you home, peaceful. Peaceful. Then they will be peace. They'll know mom and dad loves each other. Your wife will know that to you, she's perfect. She's love on the face of the earth. That's your job. Home is home of peace. That's what she'll do. So that's what it looks like practically. And it's something that we all live to strive for every day. Not in our strength, but in the strength of God. And Paul talks about that power of God that we're so effectively powerfully in him. Well, that's what the Spirit of God wants to do. And when we quench the Holy Spirit, another word from the Apostle Paul, when we quench the Holy Spirit, what we end up doing is we quench him by not walking in the Spirit, but instead giving him to our flesh. So, Jeremiah, that's about as good as I can do on it. It's really, really important that you uh, that you understand that. Uh, last thing, and I'll just do this for quickly, is uh, from Drew in my email inbox. He said, Ron, God bless you for your answer the question of how Christians should act on the current events concerning racism and confederate monuments. Please pray for my daughter, Lauren, who lives in Charlottesville, is pregnant and frightened. See, that's the ugly fruit. Drew, thank you for this. I'll sign off with this. That's the ugly fruit of our flesh. A woman who should be experiencing the second most exciting thing in her life, giving birth to a child, and she has to live in fear. Shame on us. Hey, thanks for a great week on the program. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 KSLR, The Word, to take your phone calls and questions. Have a great weekend in Christ. See you on Monday. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Well,